Today being July 4th means that we have 245 years that we've been a country, and we have enjoyed being Americans for that long. In a number of ways, the United States has been and still is the greatest nation on the earth. Even until this day, people by the thousands, literally, seek to come to America and ultimately become citizens of this great land. In fact, I looked up the statistic, an average of 860,000 people apply for American citizenship every year. And that doesn't include the tens of thousands of people who are born citizens. It is, rightly so, it is a privilege to be an American citizen, but it's being more and more difficult all the time to become one. So let me ask you, how many of you were born American citizens? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you had to, at one point, or did become an American citizen? You weren't born that way, but you became quite a number, right? How many of you are, if it, is anybody here, I don't run into too many, how many are dual citizens? You're a citizen of America and another country. Are there any dual citizens? We have one, two, a few. Oh, wow. More than a few, right? Excellent. Fantastic. When you become a citizen... And I've only watched it. I, I like to be in person to watch it sometime, but you, you can watch it on the internet. You have to take what's called the Oath of Allegiance to the United States. It's basically a sworn declaration that every new citizen has to make um, ever since the 1800s. And basically, without reciting the whole thing, new citizens have to promise to fulfill three duties. Number one, to support and defend the U.S. Constitution and its laws. Two, to give up allegiance to any other nation and any other sovereign. And then to, pro, uh, to protect or, or actually provide military or civil service if you are called to do so. Um, over the many, many years of talking to people really all over, I have come to the realization and discovered that citizenship in America means different things to different people. And uh, they've told me of their citizenship journey, really, of how they became American citizen, and some of them were quicker than others, and some took many, many years. Some told me stories of how it was to get freedom to come to America, and some of it was for a better life for their family, and some of it was for financial reasons or a mixture of all of those. I've, I've talked to Philot Castor, who came from Haiti, and how he became a citizen here, and eventually had his family here. I've talked to Pastor Ray, who uh, told me about his citizenship in 2012, uh, when he became a citizen from Costa Rica. And I've talked to Yosef, who is still working on be- getting a citizenship from Romania, and, and all <laughs> the red tape, and I'll be nice, right? The red tape that it's taken to get through all of that. Um, but truly, what I've also discovered about being an American citizen is that it forms and shapes our lives literally every day. Hear me out when I say being an American citizen is in no way a neutral identity. Um, with all the good that happens in America and being an American citizen, you have to also realize that it comes with a set of expected values and morals, a belief system, as it were, and with that belief system, an expected lifestyle. In his book, Awaiting the King, philosopher James K.A. Smith argues in the book that there is a distinction between what we, we make ultimate and what he calls Penultimate, not a word we use very often. Ultimate are the things that are most important, 
penultimate are things that are not quite as important as what is ultimate. It's a little farther down the list. And he says, eternal moral theological values, those things that we hold, those are what are ultimate. And he says, those are things that are temporary, earthly, and pragmatic. Those values are ones that we hold in a penultimate way, a lesser way. And he says, the problem in America anymore is that those two things are becoming more and more blurred. And he says, the real problem is, is that things that are penultimate are never content with staying penultimate. In other words, things that are secondary in America want to push their way up in the Christian's life to become primary. The things that are penultimate want to become ultimate in our lives. And he says, and it's a grave danger. Let me take a moment and apply that to our citizenship as Christians in America. See, according to the scriptures, and you'll see it in the passages that we read, even the ones we read in Philippians, that here's what the Bible sees, that every one of us as Christians are dual citizens. We are citizens of this earth, and we are ultimately citizens of the heavenly colony where Jesus is. And what is ultimate in the scriptures is our citizenship in heaven. What is penultimate, what is less important, what is controlled by our ultimate citizenship is our one on the earth. But the problem is, even with a lot of American Christians, is that, as he said, penultimate things rarely are content with being second. They want to be first. And so how do we, as dual citizens, primarily in heaven, secondarily on earth, how do we maintain and not let that become a blur in our lives. So let me ask you a few questions. Along the way, you're going to have to answer them to get a full understanding of what the Bible says about this issue. We have to ask, where do I really belong? Where is my true home? How do I keep my citizenship in heaven and my allegiance to King Jesus ultimate in my everyday life? And as I do that, what would it really look like? So in other words, let's ask the question, what is my American citizenship for, scripturally? So as followers of King Jesus, our citizenship is heaven. That is ultimate. But we also do have a citizenship on earth. And for us, it's being Americans. How do we view those things? How do we keep the tension that the Bible places on them? So in order to find the answers to those questions, we're going to look at these three passages and I want to start with a principle, and then I'm going to give you two case studies of how we as a church of people here who follow King Jesus can live as dual citizens in our world. So let me start with the principle, and you're in Acts 16, I hope, by this time. The principle is this. Living out your heavenly citizenship as ultimate and your earthly citizenship as penultimate or secondary or less important, at times, if you do it right, will cause great conflict. If you read, not, don't turn there, but Acts twenty two twenty eight, Paul was having a, a, a conversation with a Roman centurion because this guy was going to save his life because the crowds were going to beat him to death. We're going to look at that in a minute. And he says, this Roman soldier to Paul, are you a Roman citizen? And he says, yes. And the soldier says, as a Roman centurion, which is a pretty good position, he goes, well, I purchased my citizenship with a great sum of money. Paul says... I was born into it. There were two ways to be citizens in the first century. Just like almost here, you were born into it or you had to pay for it. You had to pay the price. You had to go through the process to becoming a Roman citizenship. And different than our citizenship, 
quite a bit different was the fact that not everybody who was born in Rome could be a citizen. If you were a slave born in Rome, you could never be a citizen. If you were, a, in fact, very few women who were Roman women could be citizens, only a very few. And a lot of people who were Roman citizens and actually had citizenship did not have all the benefits of that citizenship. They could not vote, and they could not have a lot of, they could not testify in court. There are a lot of things that even Roman citizens could not do. So Paul comes to Acts 16, and it's the background to the first case study we're going to look at, Philippians, I should say, the second one. It was a Roman colony. It had the highest Roman status of any city outside of Rome. In fact, people called it, like we say, Little Italy, you know, they were called Little Rome. And Paul comes to this, and if you look in chapter 16 and verse 20, actually verse 19, but when he, her owners, this is the girl who was demonized, saw that their hope was gone, Paul cast out the demon. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, here's what they say about what they've been doing in Philippi. These men are Jews. They're monotheists. See, Romans were polytheists. They didn't mind adding Jesus to the pantheon of their gods. It wasn't a problem with claiming Jesus was a god. It was claiming that he was the only god. They were really good with having him added on. But when you said he was the only god and none of their gods were real, that became a major issue. Jewish people do that. And here's what they said. These Jewish men, they are disturbing our city. How are they disturbing their city? They advocate customs that are not lawful, watch, for us as Romans. We can't accept them and we can't practice them. What were they saying? What was so threatening to these Roman citizens that they needed to do something harmful to Paul and Silas? Well, back in verse 17, Paul had been going around with Silas, and the Bible says they were, and this is the demon inside the girl telling people, these men are of the Most High God, and they proclaim, watch this, the way of salvation. How do people get saved? Roman citizens believed, and the name on many plaques and many statues was that Caesar was the Savior, that he would be, bring peace. And the reason that they had all the blessings and benefits of their life was because of what Caesar had done. He was the Savior of the world. Paul was going around and saying this. No, there's another Savior. And it's not the Savior G Caesar in Rome. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And here's why he can save you. And the Romans were hearing this. And Paul was saying things that were completely antithetical to everything that Rome stood for. And so therefore they were very upset with the message and with the miracles that went along with it. Now, also in this passage, there's a guy who's the jailer. Paul and Silas get thrown into prison. Hold on, keep following me, because as a Roman citizen, you cannot be thrown in prison and you cannot be beaten without a trial. They do not try Paul. They don't give him anything that he deserves because they don't know he's a Roman citizen. So they beat him and they flog him. I won't even tell you how disgraceful flogging was, but then he is put in stocks with your hands and feet in very awkward positions late at night, and it's very, very painful to be in stocks if you weren't beaten, but he was beaten and put in stocks. Now, in the middle of the night, at midnight, Scripture says, they begin to sing praises to God. An earthquake occurs, and all the prison doors open in Acts 16, and normally that would mean that all the prisoners would escape, but none of them do. And the jailer, not knowing that yet, 
runs up because he, his house is next to the jail. And he runs in and he knows this. As a Roman soldier, as the jailer, if he lets anyone escape, the punishment is death. Now, he can't be, as a Roman citizen, crucified, but he will be beheaded for it. And so that obviously would be frightening. And so he runs in and he doesn't know what to do. And he asks the very famous evangelistic phrase in 1631, what must I do to be saved? And here's what they say. Listen, catch it. Believe in the Lord Jesus the King. That's the message. In other words, switch your allegiances. The message of the gospel is that you die and go to heaven. That is the result of it. But what it is, is to accept Jesus for who he is. He is the king. He's the one who died on the cross. He's the only one that offers forgiveness. And here's the message the jailer, the Roman jailer gets. That Jesus ultimately is king. And he gets saved. And then watch. He gets publicly baptized. When you get baptized, it's not the same here as much because we're not worried about what it means to be a Christian yet in this country. But publicly being baptized in front of everybody else or out in the open was to declare that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the Lord and King. That's exactly what this Roman jailer does. After it's over, the next day comes, and the magistrates come, and they find out that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. And you can read the verses for yourself, 37, 38, and 39. And it says, when they find out that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, they are very, very afraid. Because they have tried him, and they have beaten them, and they have put him in prison, and they had no right to do it. That would end their lives if it got back to Rome. And so they're very apologetic, the Bible says, and they ask Paul to forgive them. And Paul says, if you want to say it, come down and say it to me yourself. <laughs> and they do, and he's willing to leave the city. After that, stay with me, he goes to Thessalonica, which is down the road. He is there preaching a message for a number of days, and they want to come to the house where he is, and they want to seize Paul. There's a theater there, and they want to go in, and they want to take him, and I don't know what they would have done to him if he would have been there. But he doesn't go into the theater, and here's what they say in verse 7. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and, here, and they are acting, all of them, against the decrees of Caesar. So whatever the gospel message is, is in direct opposition to being a Roman and to being a Roman citizen. And they drag them out there, and here's saying this. What are they saying? There is another king, another heteros. Alos is another of the same kind. Heteros in the Greek is another of a different kind. So here's the message he's proclaiming, that there's another king, not the same kind of king that Caesar is, a different kind of king. And this king is Jesus, and he's the one that you should serve and worship. That's the message, and it gets them in really, really big trouble. So here's the million-dollar question. Why, as a Roman citizen, does Paul not tell them before they beat him and put him in the stocks, and throw him in the prison, that he's a Roman citizen. And you know why that's a good question? We don't have time. But if you turn to Acts 22, again, that mob scene where they're about to beat him, he does tell the centurion, I'm a Roman soldier. Are you going to beat me and do this to me when I'm uncondemned? And they all get afraid again. So there is one time where he does use his citizenship, and they don't beat him. But in this town, in Philippi, he does. Why? Because of the way Paul viewed his Roman citizenship. 
Let me tell you this. He did not view being a Roman as a ticket to the good life. He viewed being a Roman citizen as a tool for the gospel life. He looked at it as an opportunity to do things for the gospel, for the mission that he was on, to further the King Jesus gospel out there in ways that he would never have been able to do if he wasn't a Roman citizen. So let me say it to you clearly. The purpose of Roman citizenship Paul, for Paul was mission. It was to spread this kind of news. Jesus is king, Caesar is not. Jesus is savior, Caesar is not. Peace comes through Jesus, the, not the Pax Romana that the Caesars offer. So what's the application for us? Here's the question I want you to think about today. How do you view your American citizenship? See, as a Christian, how do you think about it? Ask yourself, if you were born a citizen or you became a citizen through other means, ask yourself, why do you think God had you be born in this country? Why do you think God gave you citizenship in the greatest land on the planet? Why? Well, if you're thinking tend ultimately, you'll think of some of these things. Well, because the medical things so, are so much better here, and the hospitalization and the insurance are so much better. It is a great benefit, but that's pen ultimate. Medical doesn't trump mission. See, medical is pen ultimate, mission is ultimate. Well, because I make a lot better living here. You know, in the other places, people don't even make minimum wage, and they're not doing very well at all. But in America, at least if you're willing to work, you can get a decent job, and you can send, I know people who send money home all the time to their relatives in other countries. But see, the money you can make in America is penultimate. But see, the mission is ultimate. Well, the job opportunities are greater here, and I can further myself, and I can be a lot more, and that's fantastic, and you should. But the job opportunities are penultimate. The gospel opportunities are ultimate. My family is here, but God's family, that's what's ultimate. See, I can get a better education, or is it about evangelism? See, we make decisions, don't we? Not just being American citizens, but how we will use it. See, the distinction as dual citizens, keeping that distinction and keeping our heavenly citizenship ultimate is not easy to maintain. In fact, it wasn't easy in the first century, as you're already beginning to see, but it's not easy in the 21st century easy as well. So let me give you the two examples in our remaining time. Two ways that two Christian churches in two very Romanized cities kept attention of keeping their allegiance to Jesus first. So turn to Ephesians chapter 2, if you would. There are two times in this passage and two times in the, in the Philippians passage that use the word politics. And that's the word citizenship comes from. And so here is a group of people in Ephesus, listen to this, they have lived as Roman citizens all their lives. That's all they've known. And that Roman citizenship has connected them to their gods and has connected them to other Romans. And that is their lifestyle. It's what they know. And there was a day that came 
when Paul came to town and he gave him the gospel, and you can read it for yourself in Acts 19, that all of that changed. They got the gospel of King Jesus who died on the cross and rose again to be the savior of the world, and they believed that. And what Paul wants to do is he writes in this letter, look at chapter 2 and verse 11. And in verse 11, he says in verse 12, he wants them to remember the day, and I'm going to use American language, that they stood there, put their right hand up, and took the oath of allegiance and became citizens of heaven. He wants them to remember that day. Verse 11, remember that at one time in the past, you were Gentiles, called the uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember this. Remember that you were at time, here's what having only Roman citizenship did for you. It separated and alienated you from God. See, you were without hope in this world. Read a little further down. See, That citizenship alone only separates you from God, and then it separates you from other people. See, that's what they had. They were non-citizens of heaven. And here's what the Bible says in verse 12. He says, Remember you were at times separated from Christ, alienated and circulate from the commonwealth. That is the word citizenship. You were not citizens of Israel, God's people. You were outside of God's people. Yes, you were citizens of Rome, But the most important citizenship of heaven, you didn't have it. And what did it do for you? It separated you from God, and it separated you from other people. They had earthly citizenship, but not heavenly citizenship. They had Roman citizenship, but not royal citizenship. They had allegiance to Caesar, but not allegiance to Jesus. They didn't have that in their lives. And they had a huge void and an emptiness in their lives because of it. But the day they got saved, look at chapter 2 and verse 13, Here's what he says happens. But now, see that? But that changed. It changed. Now in King Jesus, you used to be far off, and now you're not. So when you got saved, and you understand who King Jesus was, and that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again, see, it changed your life. You can look at it this way. Salvation is a change of ultimate citizenship. It used to be Rome for them that was ultimate. But now it's Jesus and his kingdom. That has become ultimate to the point, watch. In chapter 2 and verse 19, it reads this. Stay with me. So then you are no longer, that's a change in their identity. This is not who you primarily are anymore. You're no longer strangers. And that's the word we get, foreigners. You're not people who are coming in from outside. You're not foreigners. You're not aliens. Who are you? Listen, there's the word. You are fellow citizens. See, when you get saved, here's what happens in our country. You're no longer just an American citizen. Salvation means that the ultimate citizenship you have is Jesus and his kingdom and the heavenly colony that you are now a part of. So American citizenship is by birth. But see, heavenly citizenship is by rebirth. See, if you were born American, it's called naturalized. But if you reborn Christian, it's supernaturalized. See, that's the most important birth that we have. And he goes on to tell them in this passage, and what I want to get to today, is how did it happen How did it happen? He tells them in 2.16, it happened through the cross. It happened through the cross. That changed everything. It went from having a citizenship that divided you from God and others to watch having a royal citizenship that unites you 
to God and others. You didn't have God. You didn't have hope. But when you came to the cross and you accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior and your King, here's what happens. It started, it united you to God. And then it also, because you're united to God, you're united to people. And so here's what happens. This is what we should be like. Therefore, social status doesn't matter anymore. And what's primary about us in here is not whether you're black or white, not whether you're Jew or Gentile, not whether you're rich or poor, not whether you are powerful or powerless. See, all of those identities no longer matter. They're all, at best, secondary. And what matters now is what we have in common, Jesus and our allegiance to him and his cross. Can I tell you, though, if you are a person from Ephesus, as a Roman citizen, the fact that the cross would unite people was repugnant because you became a Roman citizen and one of the benefits were you couldn't be crucified because crucifixion was the most shameful, humbling, awful, public, excruciating death and everybody who ever, it was not even polite to talk about it in public. You didn't ever watch one and you never wanted to be part of one for sure. It was awful. It was looked down on by everyone in culture. And yet, here's what Paul says the message is, that to become a citizen of heaven, you put your trust in the work of a Jewish Messiah who was crucified as a slave. See, to them, to those people who are only Roman citizenships, that would be shameful and dishonoring. But for those who are citizens of heaven, it is the most honorable and powerful event that has ever taken place in the history of mankind because they think completely different about it. Paul would say if he was here this morning, I believe this, the cross is the center of our citizenship. The question is, is it the center of your life and citizenship? I call it cruciform citizenship. Cruciform is a word that means shaped by the cross, the patterns of the cross, the, the mentality of the cross, the lifestyle that goes with the cross. And Paul says, birthed out of that cross is a new kind of people, a people that don't live like American citizens do. They don't think like American citizens do. They don't have the values and the morals that American citizens do because the hostility between God and other people are over. So all the social divisions, read Ephesians 2 for yourself, have been broken down. They were a wall that used to separate us, but now they don't. This new citizenship unites us. So in here, it's no longer about whether you're from Ecuador or Colombia or Africa or Dominica or anywhere else. It's not a, that's not your primary identity anymore. Those things at times divide, but not in the church. They unite us. See, it's not about whether the color of your skin is dark or light. Those things, as you've seen in our culture in the last year in particular, they divide, but through the cross, they unite. Rich and poor, powerful and powerless. See, Paul says in Ephesus, there was this gigantic temple to Diana, and that's where the world thought the world's problems could be solved. He says, but you know what I've done through the cross? I've made a new temple. Read it for yourself at the end of verses 19 through 22. A new temple. I've built a new kind of people with a new kind of worship that doesn't exclude people because of their social status or their race or their economics or any of those things. I've done it through the work of the cross. That's the important thing. Why, Pastor Walker? Here's why. 
Because the cross of Jesus has dealt with what has divided us all. And that is the root of humanity's problem. And you know what it is? Sin. You know what the paragraph that happens before Ephesians 2, 11 through 22? It's 1 through 10. And you know what it is? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And through Christ, he has made you alive. Can I tell you bluntly today, the number one problem in America is sin. But if you are an earthly citizen, here's what you might think, especially in the last year or two, as you look around at our culture. People who are only earthly citizens will think racial issues are our number one problem. They will think that finances are our number one problem. They will think that sexuality and gender is our number one problem. They will think medical issues and having COVID-19 is our number one problem. They will think social issues, educational issues, or political issues Democrat or Republican, they will think that those are our number one problems. And therefore, that's what people talk about, what they get on and start fights on the internet and social media over. You know why? Because if you're earthly and you're only an American, you're going to think that's the real issue. And here's what Paul says. You know why it's cruciform citizenship? Because we need a savior, unlike Caesar, who can solve the real problem, the root problem, the spiritual problem which is sin. And only the cross of Jesus can deal with that. So the first example is Ephesus. And here's what you have to do. Remember that your heavenly citizenship is primary, that it's cross-shaped, and it has dealt with our biggest problem, sin. But would you close with me by turning to the book of Philippians, back to where we read before. Philippi, as I said before, has the highest Roman status. It's a colony. And here's what happens. Just like, just like today, when you became a Roman citizen, the mark of being a Roman citizen was your loyalty and allegiance to Caesar. America's just the same. Let me ask you a question. Can you remember when and where you were the first time you learned to recite the Pledge of Allegiance? I can tell you where I was. I was a kindergartner, and I was five years old, public school. I went to public school until I was in 10th grade. And I remember we were told to stand up and look at the front, at the board. There was a little flag hanging on there, and I put my, you know, you put your hand up, and you say the Pledge of Allegiance. And I'm, listen, I'm five. I'm not even sure I knew what allegiance or pledge even meant. But I did it. And that day, for the first time, in a five-year-old way, and more and more as I got older, and we recited it every day, I came to realize, when you pledge allegiance, that our school system really put a lot of emphasis on those words, and they saw that that's what good citizens do. You pledge allegiance. So I asked the question this week to myself, why do we regard allegiance to be such of paramount importance when it comes to citizenship? We do it in America. Why? Because America knows this. Allegiances presuppose relationships. You do not pledge allegiance to a car, right? You don't pledge allegiance to inanimate objects. I don't even pledge allegiance to abstract concepts like freedom, although I am so thankful for our freedoms. But I don't pledge allegiance to an abstract concept. We have flag. So if we had a flag and we said, I pledge allegiance to the flag, why do we say, I pledge allegiance to a flag, because here's what the allegiance, Pledge of Allegiance says. 
It says this, I pledge allegiance to the flag because it is it stand, the republic for which it stands. Flags are symbolic of our republic. So when I pledge allegiance to the flag, what am I doing? I'm doing that to America. That's why Christians have also come up with a Christian flag. Because we have a flag that represents the kingdom for which it stands. Because here's the truth. Allegiances shape and form us through the relationships that we partner with people to carry out that allegiance. If you read the book of Philippians, it begins by Paul talking about his partnership with the Philippians in the gospel. Because as people who grew up their whole life in a city where all the retired soldiers went and, had, and lived their lives in retirement, Philippi was about the most Roman city outside of Rome there possibly was. And it would be easy for a Christian in that culture to forget what their number one citizenship was, what their number one allegiance was, and the relationships that were built off it. So here's what he does in Philippians. He reminds them that your greatest partnership and relationship comes from the citizenships that you have in heaven because the other ones are constantly competing with it. See? And so in verse 27, in light of that, look what he says. Only let your life as a citizen be worthy of the gospel. Do you know why Paul took the beating in this town, in Acts 16? Because he wanted to tell the Philippians who had been saved that being a Roman citizen and a citizen of heaven are different. When you become a Roman, you're hoping that it will make you avoid suffering because their military power wipe out your enemies and you'll never have to be in suffering. But here's what Paul says, but the kingdom citizen of Christ is way different. He says to them in this text, it is not only be given you in the behalf to believe on him, but to suffer for his name. So you don't avoid suffering as a Christian, you get it as a gift. Because they're completely antithetical, they're competing citizenships. So he says, make sure, as you know who you really are first, you are a citizen of So make sure your life is worthy of King Jesus and all that he's done for you. Live differently. Don't have the same values as everybody else who lives in Philippi. Don't think that, hey, because Paul was in prison, number one emissary of this new kingdom and this new colony, and here he is in prison, and he had been beaten, and they're thinking this, hmm, in Rome, citizens, we don't get that kind of treatment. But if I sign up for kingdom citizen with Jesus and put my allegiance to him, I may end up like Paul. And here's what he says, live worthy of it. Live worthy of who he is. See, that's the crux, isn't it? To live a cruciform citizenship means that you have to give your allegiance to Jesus and you may not be popular in America. See, when you don't believe in American values and you don't believe in the gender change or you don't believe in the racism that's going on and you don't believe in homosexual marriages and you don't believe, and so if you, don't, you believe the scriptures and you follow King Jesus and you, you hold on to his morals and his values and his priorities, can I tell you this? It will result in conflict. And so Paul has to say this. Here's what should happen. Chapter 1, 27 through 30. We are striving together for the faith of the gospel. And the word striving means to agonize. It's painful at times to tell people that the real true king is Jesus. Which I jokingly say sometimes, I always vote for Jesus as president. And I'm only half joking. Because the reality is that's where our citizenship is. So you have to ask the question, don't you? Are you living lives worthy of gospel citizenship? 
Because the only alternative otherwise is unworthy lives. And can I tell you things that people say on Facebook and social media? A lot of them, Christians behind them, they're unworthy of the gospel. Unworthy of the gospel. The lack of forgiveness that goes on amongst God's people should never be true in the cancel culture that we live outside of here. It's true, but not in here. The way that we love each other and we make the cross the issues and the differences we have politically, see, those aren't the things that matter most. They matter, but they don't matter most. Paul says in chapter 3, and I'll close with 17 through 21, he says, here's what you need. If you want to find a way to model citizenship from heaven, look at my life, Paul says. And he uses two words, imitate, which is the word mimic, and example, which is type or tupas. In other words, if you want a pattern to put your life on top of and draw a pattern of how Jesus would want you to live in a world where you have two citizenships and the other one is antithetic to the other one, here's how you do it. And he says, watch in the pet text, walk this way, but don't walk this way. Look right here. This is how important it is that you get this message today. Paul says, if you walk like I do and use your citizenship like I do, and you're willing to suffer and not keep your rights but let them go and, and make the number one thing about your American citizenship, the gospel, here's what he says, walk this way because you will be a friend of the cross. And then he says, using the word walk again, but there are those who I tell you who walk this way. And he says, and I tell you weeping because they were probably people at the church one time and they're not there anymore. But they walk differently, and here's what he characterizes them, enemies of the cross. So the way you use your citizenship puts you in two camps, either friends of the cross or enemies of the cross, because true citizenship from heaven is cruciform. And those who reject living out of the cross as citizens of heaven, the Bible says this, the, their end is destruction. The reason it is, is because their God is their belly, and they take pleasure in shameful things, and they live like the citizens of America. God forbid that American Christians at Faith Baptist Church would ever live like America. But instead, we would walk differently. And Paul says, this is who they are, and this is how they walk. But look at verse 20. But, strongest way you can say a contrast, but our citizenship is, look at how they do citizenship. This is how you do it. Our citizenship is in heaven from whence we are waiting for the Lord Jesus who is king. We're, the king is not here. He's there, but he's coming back. Let me tell you this and I'll close. The number one goal of every citizen, whether secular or sacred, was this, to be like their king. That was the goal. So, See, Roman citizens wanted to be like Caesar, and they lived like it, and they were shameful, and they were fleshly, and it says they mined earthly things. They couldn't get beyond the things of this life. But he says when your goal is to be like King Jesus, and you're to be like him and his morals and his values, you know what will happen someday? Here's what's true. When you live that way now and have the transformation of having heavenly citizenship now in your life, someday when he comes back, he's going to finish the transformation. Your lowly, humble bodies will be made like his glorious body. And where does he get the power to transform your body for eternity like that? Because he has the ability, it says, to subdue all things 
unto himself. In other words, he has power over Caesar and Rome and America and the Oval Office and every other nation and country in this world. He has the ultimate power and that will be exhibited as you carry out the transformation of being a heavenly citizen. Now, someday, it will ultimately be completed and you will be made like him and the goal will be finished. But what are we doing now as a church? What are we doing now as individuals? Are we cultural Christians or are we cruciform citizens? We have to answer that question, don't we? Let's pray. Father, on a day that we celebrate the blessings and the freedoms of this great country. We think of a greater citizenship than even that of being an American. It's being part of the heavenly colony. It's our loyalty and allegiance to King Jesus. May it always, may it always dominate and control every other citizenship, every other loyalty, every other allegiance. May it be obvious that he and his kingdom are ultimate at Faith Baptist Church and the lives of those who swore their allegiance to you and to who you are as king. May you help us, Lord, by your word and Holy Spirit to live lives worthy of that gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.